Hello and welcome to Joel Johnson's Money Wisdom. I'm John Stillman alongside Joel Johnson, certified financial planner and the CEO of Johnson Brunetti, the official wealth management partner of the Yukon Huskies. He's published six of his own books, including most famously The Money Map. He's been published in Forbes and The Wall Street Journal, and he's the host of Better Money on WFSB Channel 3 on the Saturday and Sunday morning news with Kara Sundland in Hartford. And in Boston on WCBV, you can see Better Money Saturdays during the 7 a.m. news. Joel, how are you this week? Always a pleasure. And actually, uh, I wanted to jump into a term. I want to define a term. We'll open up the financial dictionary here. I can't tell you how many questions we've had about this term that a lot of people just, for whatever reason, are confused about who is this, who is not this, what does it even mean, why do you need it in the first place, and that term is fiduciary. Now, there was a fiduciary rule that was getting put in place uh, for a while from the Department of Labor, but now it's no longer a thing. So take some of the mystery out of this for us. What the heck does fiduciary mean? Why does it matter? And who would be defined as such? Well, a fiduciary just simply means one who is obligated either by a code of ethics such as the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards. So I'm a CFP. I'm part of the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards or by the SEC acting as a registered investment advisor, a fiduciary is someone who must act in the best interest of his clients, his or her clients. The contrast to that, somebody says, well, gee, Joel, doesn't everybody do that? The contrast to that is somebody that's licensed merely as a stockbroker or an insurance agent. They only have to show that they didn't hurt the client. So one standard, the higher standard, fiduciary, means you have to act in the best interest of your client. The other standard is, well, you can sell anything you want as long as it doesn't hurt the client. It has to be suitable. Two very, very different standards. And that's why, in my opinion, it's important that you're dealing with a fiduciary, somebody bound by the rules of being a fiduciary. And again, under the Securities and Exchange Commission of the United States, I have certain fiduciary standards I have to uphold. We also have the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards because I'm a certified financial planner, and I pledge to uphold those standards. And if I don't uphold the standards, then I have to answer to those bodies. So very important, in my opinion, that you're dealing with somebody who is a fiduciary. There are many other components of somebody being a good financial advisor to you, um, but a fiduciary is a good place to start. So important that you understand that term and also important to know whether or not the person you're working with is a fiduciary or not. Uh, Joel, wanted to ask you about Jamie Dimon, who, of course, if you're not familiar, is the CEO of J.P. Morgan. I know, Joel, you like Jamie Dimon a lot, but he recently said uh, that the next major recession in this country will probably be related to student loan debt. Outstanding student loans now total, get this, $1.5 trillion. That's second only to mortgage debt. So, Joel, how do you advise clients to handle college funding for their kids, you know, to hopefully avoid them being a part of this crisis? I know a lot of the folks you work with are in that stage of life where kids are in college. 
maybe have just finished college or maybe are about to go to college. I mean, that's where you find yourself, right? You have some that are out and some in college now. Yeah, that's correct. And let's just back up a minute, John, and, and talk about, you know, what do we try to do on this program, on this Money Wisdom program? We like to talk about things that are kind of interesting from time to time, you know, maybe my grandparents and lessons they taught. But the, the bottom line of this program is we want to bring you wisdom. We want to talk about what's going on in the world, like your question here that I'm going to get to the answer to in just a minute, but what's going on in the world? What are people saying? What do retirees and pre-retirees have to watch out for to protect their retirement? And what are simple strategies that you can take, you as a listener can take right now to position yourself to retire comfortably or if you're retired to protect your income stream and your assets. That's what this show is about. Very simply giving you some entertaining things to hear that uh, revolve around family and the topic of finance, give you some things to watch out for, what's going on in the current world, and then of course positive steps you can take. So with that said, we're always out there looking for the next potential shoe to drop. And although it's rare that people can predict exactly why a recession happens, why a stock market downturn happens, they always happen sooner or later. At least that's what history says. The market goes up and the market goes down. Well, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, of course, one of the largest banks uh, in the world. And uh, full disclosure, I'm a shareholder in J.P. Morgan. I'm not telling you to go out and be a shareholder. I'm just giving my disclosure. But uh, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan and his people say that they think that the big student loans out there, again, $1.5 trillion dollars, that students owe to the cost of getting their education to institutions out there. And because these a lot of these student loans are federally guaranteed, the banks don't have to worry too much about getting their money back. So he thinks this is going to be the next big recession. All this debt that kids borrowed and their parents borrowed to go to school. It's second only to mortgage debt, as you mentioned, John. So how do we advise our clients to handle college funding? Well, you know, my youngest just started college. He's 19. He's a freshman down in North Carolina at school. And my oldest has been out of school for some time. He's 28 years old. We were very fortunate. We didn't actually I take that back. The oldest, we made him take out some student loans, not a lot, but enough to have some skin in the game. All of our kids have to, had to pay a portion of their college or similar or related expenses. Um, but if you have to borrow, I would just say be cautious. Um, first of all, look at the school. Do you really need to send your child to a school where maybe you have to borrow twice as much? then going to maybe an in-state school. I know there's a big billboard up by my house that said that the University of Maine is the same tuition as the University of Connecticut. Now, this isn't a comment on which school's better or should you even go to Quinnipiac or Yale or whatnot. I'm just saying if you look around, you might find a better bargain. And in my opinion, a lot of it has to do with, with the, the child and the student and their work habits and so on. Again, that's just my opinion. So we advise our, our clients to not take out too much debt um, try to find those bargains, maybe take some money from a school that's offering it. Be very, very cautious. I know some of my clients say, well, my kid can get into Harvard. We're going to Harvard no matter what. I respect that. And you know, with a school like that, obviously a lot of connections are made. But I think for most people, it might be a choice between UMass and um, you know, another school in Massachusetts, and yet UMass has in-state tuition and, and a much better deal. So I'd be very cautious about borrowing too much money. And again, this is going to be a crisis. One and a half trillion dollars is a lot of money. And it's real easy to walk away from student loan debt, much easier than it is to default on a mortgage because they can come take your house. I know sometimes this is a source of disagreement between mom and dad in terms of uh, how that's going to be funded, just how much skin in the game 
you want your child to have. Sometimes moms and dads see those things differently. So, Joel, let's talk about some of the spousal disagreements that we run across in financial planning, uh, some other ones other than how to deal with college planning. But I know one that we see a lot that's often different between husband and wife is how much risk should we have in our portfolio? Very often, men and women see the answer to that question very differently. Well, they sure do. There's that old saying, opposites attract. And wow, do we ever see this in uh, our financial planning business here at Johnson Brunetti. Many, many times a spouse comes in or a couple comes in. One spouse is a real risk taker um, and the other one is not a risk taker at all. So the amount of risk somebody should have in your portfolio, there's some basic guidelines. Um, Some of the basic guidelines are you take your age and you subtract it from 100 or you subtract it from 120. So somebody that's about 60 years old should have somewhere between um, 40 and 50% of their portfolio exposed to the market and the rest in something that can't go down and in financial strategies that can't go down. Again, I'm throwing that out. I'm not telling you to follow that because it's different for everybody. Throwing that out as one of the rules of thumb. And sometimes just by discussing that with a couple, we can give them better perspective and have a starting point for a further and deeper discussion about risk. As a general rule, if you are retired, you want to be focused on preservation of your portfolio. Yes, you want to get the most income possible. Yes, you want some growth to protect against inflation. Yes, 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 yes to all those things. But if you're pulling income off a portfolio, you need to think of running that portfolio like a pension fund where you can produce a steady return, a smooth rate of return, not huge ups and not huge downs in the bad years, but a smooth rate of return so that you can extract income off that portfolio and have your principal for the most part be intact or even grow to pass on to the next generation or a charity that you care about. So how much risk you should have, that's an individual answer. Um, Again, that's why we ask you to come in for that visit so we can customize that answer of how much risk. But it's important that a discussion takes into account the different personalities that are involved in a marriage. Joel, how about legacy plans? I know this is often a source of disagreement too. How much money do we want to leave to the kids? And I would have thought years ago that usually... Uh, mom wanted to leave money behind and dad didn't really care. Uh, It's not at all correlated that way. If anything, it might be correlated the other way. Mom isn't as worried about legacy and dad maybe is. Yeah. And I'm just, you know, to, for me to figure that out off the top of my head, I'm not sure because I've heard both, but I (laughs) I remember meeting with one couple and, you know, one of the two said, we want to leave as much as possible for our kids because it's going to be a rough world out there. And the other one laughed and said, no way. You know, we want to we want to bounce the check to the funeral home. We want to live like we want to live and then be broke the day we die. We've given them everything, a great home and a great education, and we they don't deserve to have anything. We want to live it up. And so big disagreements there between leaving a legacy to the kids, leaving money to the kids, and having the life that a retired couple feels like they deserve. So it's important, again, with your financial advisor, and if you come in with us, we talk about these things, and there's plenty of good financial advisors out there that do talk about these things, but how much do you want to leave to the kids? What's the best way to maximize your income while also maximizing the amount that goes to the kids? There are all kinds of different tools and strategies that we can use if we know you want to maximize that retirement, where if you come in and say to us, we just want to maximize the income, we don't care what's left behind, then that's going to be a different strategy. We're talking about spousal disagreements when it comes to financial planning. Joel, what about this one? Do we downsize to a smaller home or stay where we are? Again, husband and wife 
often not on the same page with that. And many times this is not a financial decision. Let me tell you a story about my mom and dad. Not too long ago, my mom and dad sold a home and moved to a condo. And it was definitely a downsize. And on paper and mentally, it looked like a great idea. We're not going to have to take care of the yard. Don't have to clean and keep up such a big house. They've been there for a year. And guess what? They've decided they don't want to be in a condo. They want to go back to a home. And uh, they went from a pretty decent-sized home, I think it was about 2,800 square feet, to a condo that's much, much smaller. And and um, unfortunately, they're regretting it. So, But their decision was not at all financial. Their decision was just around the ease of ownership of a, of a condominium or maybe even renting. Some We've seen some clients rent. Um, others downsize to a smaller home. Other people say, nope, we're going we're gonna to get some help around the house. And so... Again, is it a financial decision to downsize to a smaller home or is it a lifestyle decision? And that's the first question one needs to kind of flesh out there. And then if it is a financial decision, that's an easy one for us to advise you on. If it's a lifestyle decision, that's one where, you know, we're going to have about 80% of the information for you to make a decision. But there is a possibility, just like my mom and dad, that you end up making one decision and then wanting to go back a little bit later. One other thing we'll mention here when it comes to spousal disagreements is, well, just exactly what does an ideal retirement look like? Maybe one spouse wants to be be very active and the other doesn't. Or what are some of the other uh, spousal disagreements you've seen on that, Joel, in terms of what we want to do with life once we're finished working? Well, I mean, sometimes people love to travel. One person loves to travel. The other one does not. There's some disagreements around there. And and the neat thing is if somebody's financially prepared for retirement, these are sort of what I would call relaxed disagreements. There's not a lot of emotional angst that goes into these discussions that happen right in front of me in our office because the couple has the opportunity to do either or. Um, So, again, it's important to prepare well for retirement. What's an ideal retirement? It could be one spouse wants to travel a lot. The other one does not. It could be one spouse wants to go and do a bunch of volunteer work and the other spouse wants to, I don't know, play in a bowling league or something like that. There's a lot of different disagreements that happen around an ideal retirement. And here's a great exercise for you, by the way. Take out a piece of paper, and whenever you are the most creative, whether that's early morning, late at night, sometime during the midday or whatnot, and just take a blank piece of paper or a notepad and just start writing the answer to this question. If money didn't matter, if you had all the money you ever needed, exactly how would you live out your retirement? And many times you will flesh out who you really are and what you really love by getting rid of the money question. Many times when somebody's asked, well, what do you want to do when you're finally retired? Or what do you want to do when you're 75? Immediately they go to, well, what can I afford to do? So many times if you can get rid of that money uh, question, obviously money's important. We'll come back to that. But before that, just write out your ideal retirement. Write out your dreams. Write out your concerns. Just write, write, write. And then we can step back and say, well, what's practical? What can we do here with the resources that we have? And that dreaming mentality of just writing, if you do that with your spouse many times or you do it separately but then come together, you'd be surprised at what comes out of that. Well, Joel, I think that actually ties in well to one of your books. In fact, I believe your most recent book, The Wealthy Think Differently. I think especially if couples would read that book together, I think it would probably help ease some discussions and and get a lot of these concepts out into the open. Uh, Give us a quick summary of the book. And let's maybe give away a few copies right here. 
Well, after the 30 years or just shy of 30 years that I've been in this business and met with couples all up and down the eastern seaboard here, I have observed that there are certain patterns or certain ways of thinking that are very common to people that are wealthy, financially successful, and uh, that are very common to people that are not financially successful. And this book really simply contrasts those different ways of thinking, those different mindsets, those different approaches to life. And so that's what I talk about in my book, The Wealthy Think Differently. And the great thing about it is it's real short. I like to call it an airplane read. You get on the airplane from here and you fly to Chicago and you can have the book finished by that time. So it's nice and short, but it's just some interesting observations, observations like the thought process of abundance versus scarcity, the thought process that time is more important than money, all kinds of different things. Um, that I've observed. And I think you'll find it very, very interesting. You might get a two or three great ideas. I think you will uh, out of it. But nothing else, you'll be able to look into the conference room of this financial planning office and the thousands of conversations that I've had. And maybe you can put yourself right into some of those conversations. Again, if you'd like a copy of that book, you can call us or text us, whichever you prefer. We'll get a copy in your hands. The number is 800-705-1232. That's 800-705-1232. Call or text. Either way, just be sure to leave your first and last name, whether you're leaving it on the voicemail or if you're texting us. Let us know your name. We'll get back with you. Get your details so we can get that book to you. 800-705-1232. That's 800-705-1232. You're listening to Joel Johnson's Money Wisdom. And Joel, you just referenced having been in the financial industry for 30 years, which got me thinking, I've never really asked you much about your past life before you were in the financial industry. What's the toughest job you've ever had? You know, dating back to jobs you may have even had as a teenager. Well, when you said teenager, it made me think of, I I worked at Carousel Hot Dogs in the mall, which I don't even think that exists and hasn't for a long time, but... That job, I lasted for two weeks. Um, The guy said, give me two weeks. It's going to be a hard job. Most people quit. Well, you at least commit to two weeks. I I did two weeks, and then I promptly got a job in the shipping and receiving department uh, of another company. But I did fulfill my two-week commitment. But I would go in there after school, and I would work until the mall closed at 9 o'clock, and you just had this film of grease on you. And you'd have grease popping out of the fryers for the French fries and landing on your shoes. And, you know, I'm really glad for the experience. But when you said teenage, that's not the toughest job I've had. But when you said when you were a teenager, that's the first one I thought of. The hardest job I ever had from a physical standpoint was working at UPS. When my wife and I, when my wife and I were just married, it was before I got into the financial services business. So this is way back Oh my goodness, this is 34 you well, we were married in 1987. So, you know, you, you do the math, 32 years ago or so. I worked for UPS and I had two jobs. I went into the Hartford terminal of UPS. I unloaded trucks from either 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. to 8 o'clock. We would take the boxes off the big semi trucks, put them on the conveyor belt. They'd go down into the giant conveyor belt that ran around the warehouse to be sorted by other people and put on the little package trucks and, and, uh, Uh, and delivered. And in the truck, you were bent over the whole time, taking boxes, lifting them up and putting them on the conveyor belt. Toughest job. I was young and I was strong and I would come home with my back hurting and, uh, and blisters on my feet. And again, I'm really glad I did that job, but that is a tough job. Now, since that was only part time, I was delivering pizzas, uh, in the late afternoon, early evening. 
And so I have had all kinds of jobs, but when you asked me the toughest job from a physical standpoint, it was unloading those trucks at UPS. Yep, that uh, I know a lot of guys who have had jobs like that. In fact, I have a friend from high school who worked for UPS, and I think he lost 25 pounds in the first month and a half on the job just from all the movement and sweating and lifting and all that. So certainly can understand. Now, in the financial realm, I think that's probably really tough when you start out because you, you're not the right kind of advisor usually. Probably when you started in, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when you started in the financial industry, you were probably more of a salesperson than an advisor. Would that be accurate? That'd be very accurate. I mean, we talked earlier about being a fiduciary. When I started, I was trained by a stock brokerage firm, and uh, we were just told to you know, pick a couple stocks and try to get people to buy those stocks to open an account for them to become a new client, and then, and then you would go forward in the relationship from there. So it was not, let's put together a financial plan, which is what we do these days. We don't even talk about investments until a plan is put together. Back then, it was just it, Toys R Us stock, which ironically, you know, is no longer around. But back then, you know, again, 1989, Toys R Us was starting to pop up stores all over the place. And I would call people that I was introduced to or that I'd met somewhere or that maybe their friend was a client and talk to them about Toys R Us stock and what a great investment that would be. And that's how I started out, just recommending certain stocks, certain securities, opening accounts like that, and then trying to build a deeper relationship with a client. Very, very different than what we do today, which is, you know, let's put together a financial plan and we're not even going to talk about investments until a plan is put together. Then we'll we'll see if we can build out an investment portfolio that serves the plan. The plan is the foundation. Well, a lot of people don't realize it, but I think a lot of people assume they have an advisor, but what they really have is a product pitch man. And it, it might be that that pitch man has several products that he or she sells. But I think a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that they're not really getting true holistic advice. They're really getting a sales pitch. Yeah, and you have to be careful. I mean, and here's one of the red flags. If you're being told that all of your financial fears and problems can be magically solved uh, by the financial product that's being dangled in front of you, be careful. You know, planning for retirement is complex. And even if you're in retirement, you want to protect what you've earned. You know, there's this old saying, why keep playing the game if you've already won the game? And that's what a lot of people try to do in retirement by finding the next hot product or the next investment scheme. So it's rare that one product meets all of a client's needs. Um, if you've talked to your advisor for less than 15 minutes and he already knows the perfect solution, that's probably a red flag. Chances are it's the same thing he recommends to everyone. Well, and on that note, before we get out of here, I think it'd be great to offer folks, once again, the opportunity to come in for that Money Map Retirement Review so you can see what it's like to truly do holistic financial planning instead of just being sold a product. So Joel, if somebody wants the Money Map Retirement Review, what do we do? Well, you call us. It's real simple. Call us, come on in, have a visit, Get the Money Map Retirement Review. Get your own Money Map. See, the pain that you could be in store for if you don't do good financial planning is the regret of losing money, the regret of not selling earlier, the regret of getting involved in something you shouldn't have gotten involved in. And going back and just basically saying, if I would have just left well enough alone, or if I would have not have invested in that, or if I would have had this information ahead of time, well, that's what you get when you get the Money Map. Again, there are no promises. This is not a magic bullet to, that your financial future is going to be perfect. But we build a plan, a financial plan based on your goals, 
and then we plug investment strategies in to help you, in our opinion, reach those goals. It's very different than focused on product. So come on in, get your money map. You make a phone call. We set up a time for you to come in and visit. We customize that for you. It's an entire financial plan on one page. There's backup. We'll do a retirement income analysis for you. We'll do a social security analysis. Those two pieces there will give you peace of mind of knowing that you have either a high probability or hopefully a low probability of running out of money, when to take Social Security, all of those things. How to get the most money that you're entitled to out of any type of pension or Social Security plan. And then we run your investments through a stress test so that you're not surprised when the market goes down and we can make recommendations on how to better protect your portfolio. So give us a call. Get your money map. one 800 Seven zero five one two three. Do again. There's no obligation. We want to help you. One eight hundred seven zero five one two three two. Call now. Whether you're already retired, whether you're getting close to retirement, this is for you. Call or text. Actually, whichever is better. Just be sure to include your first and last name. Eight hundred seven zero five twelve thirty two. That's eight hundred seven zero five one two three two to get your very own Money Map Retirement Review. One more time, 800-705-1232. For Joel Johnson and everybody at Johnson Brunetti, that's all we have time for this week. I'm John Stillman. We'll talk with you next week right here, same time, same place, on Joel Johnson's Money Wisdom. Investment advisory services offered through JB Capital LLC, a registered investment advisor. Insurance products and services are offered and sold through individually licensed and appointed agents in all appropriate jurisdictions.